Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 10. Last week, I worked through the rough timeline embedded in the Book of Judges. In a very general sense, the book spans the history between when the Israelites settled in Canaan up to the period just before the tribes were united under King Saul, a length of time of several hundred years. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm starting the history of the judges themselves, working through them in the order they're presented in the text. And with that, let's get started. First up is Othniel, who is the first judge in the text and generally regarded as the earliest judge. Little is known about him, including what his name meant, though the general consensus is around two somewhat similar meanings. Either, God or he is my strength, or God has helped me. While I'm on the subject of his name, there's also his family. Both Joshua 15 and Judges 1 say he is the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, which leaves open his actual relationship to Caleb. He was certainly Kenaz's son. What's unclear is if he was Caleb's brother or nephew. The latter is possible if Kenaz was Caleb's brother, all depending on how you interpret the phrase Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's brother. Many translations add Caleb's younger brother, but to be honest, this doesn't add clarity. The Talmud attempts to straighten this out by claiming that Othniel was Caleb's brother. The source for this is missing, or it was based solely on speculation. All of this gets even more interesting in Joshua 15, when Caleb needed someone to drive out the people of Dabir, formerly Kiriath Shepher, from his allotment. Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kiriath Shepher and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, took it, and he gave him his daughter Aksa as wife, just like he said he would. So Othniel either married his own niece or his cousin. There's something else to this. Since this episode happens towards the end of Joshua, and Othniel becomes a judge early in Judges, it's these two passages that make people generally think that Othniel is one of the earliest judges, if not the first. And I'm going to pause the story of Othniel just for a minute to dive into a bit of a rabbit hole. The historical authenticity of events described in the Book of Judges is the subject of an ongoing dispute among academics, who vary greatly in their opinions about how much of the book is actually historical. Much of this is based on the story of Othniel, with some researchers claiming the story wasn't written to present itself as an accurate depiction of historical events. According to the Old Testament narrative, at some point, after the death of Joshua, the Israelites once again turned to sin and fell under the subjugation of their neighbors who weren't being very neighborly. In this case, Cushin, Rishathayim, who was a king of Aram Naharim, located in Mesopotamia. The narrative posits this subjugation was the result of their transgressions against God's direction. The outside king oppressed them for eight years until they finally cried out to God for relief. When they did, 
Othniel was raised up to be their deliverer. Since he was mentioned in the narrative of the previous book, Joshua, we know he wasn't born into the role of deliverer, but instead picked for it. Of all the judges, rescuers, deliverers mentioned in Judges, he's the only one named as being connected to the tribe of Judah. Under his leadership, the peace he brought lasted for 40 years. After this two-score period, some or all of the tribes fell under the control of King Eglon of Moab, who defeated Israel with help from Ammon and Amalek, and is seen in Judges 3. Here, King Eglon is said to have taken control of the city of Palms, most likely a reference to Jericho. What's noteworthy here is that no other place is mentioned as being taken. Not to forget, but in Joshua, the book's namesake cursed anyone who would take up residence in the city after its defeat by the Israelites. Obviously, some did, and now those people were under the control of a foreign king. Back in Judges, and more specifically the judge Othniel, traditionally his tomb is thought to have been in Hebron, more specifically in a cave, as was the norm at the time. The tradition then was for a family tomb with several chambers for different branches of that family. For an untold number of generations, the tomb has been revered as a prayer site. The actual location is in a vineyard. Nearby is what's said to be the tomb of King David's father, Jesse. And that's the little we know about the judge Othniel. Next up is Ehud, first mentioned in Judges 3. Sometimes his name is given in a longer version, Ehud ben Jara. Fortunately, the text is a bit more descriptive of his tenure than it was for Othniel. I've mentioned it before but the story is interesting enough to be repeated. The Israelites did what they were showing themselves as being good at, going against God, and fell to the Moabites, among others. Then they cried out, and Ehud, the son of Jerah, a Benjaminite, came forward as a judge. Ehud is referred to as a left-handed man, which will be important later in the story. We're given a great deal of detail about how Ehud overcame King Eglon. Ehud made a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, so about 18 inches, just under half a meter. He fastened the sword on his right thigh, under his clothes. Left-handed man with a weapon on his right side, meaning he was a cross-drawer. Think of it like an old western. A cross-draw slows the draw down, but allows for an immediate upper-slashing motion. There's something else to this. Being left-handed, he could conceal the sword on his right thigh, where it was not expected. Left-handedness is also symbolic because the left side of the body, especially in that era, was often associated with deception or darkness. Further, it offered a tactical advantage in war against the majority who were often right-handed and was symbolic for being outside of the culturally accepted social norm of leadership in ancient Israel and the region that surrounded it. The length of the sword is also significant. In that era, really throughout time, this size is rather short, 
really only slightly larger than a dagger, more useful for slashing and stabbing than an all-out sword fight, the perfect weapon for this encounter. Ehud went to King Eglon, presenting him with a tribute, possibly, and argued by some as the annual tribute from the tribe. At this point, we're told that the king was a very fat man, and that day, a sure sign of wealth. After Ehud presented the tribute, he sent the people who carried it on their way, likely heading back home. Which also tells us something else. This wasn't a simple trinket, but something large enough to require multiple people to carry it, and that Ehud wasn't intimidated enough by the king and his men to fear being alone with them. Then Ehud said to the king, I have a secret message for you. Upon hearing this, the king dismissed all of his attendants, leaving only himself and Ehud in the room, described as a cool roof chamber. When it was just the king and the ascending judge in the chamber, Ehud told the king that he had a message from God for the king. So the king stood up. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, which now makes his left-handedness appropriate. He took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into Eglon's belly, so deep that the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the entire sword. Which is why we're told the king was a fat man. Ehud did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the dirt came out. If you're wondering what is meant by the dirt coming out, you're not alone. A footnote in the New Revised Standard mentions that the meaning of the Hebrew phrase is uncertain. The same translation can be found in the King James, just without the footnote. The NIV leaves the dirt phrase out and instead says the king's bowels discharged. Honestly, before I even opened the NIV, that was my thought on the meaning. Eviscerated. A dirty sight indeed. There's also something else in the translations of the original Hebrew text. The Hebrew words used for the room, the king's abdomen, and dirt, lend to a translation that implies sexual undertones and potentially feminizes King Eglon, all serving to demean him even more. Back in the story, Ehud went to the vestibule, closed the doors of the roof chamber on the king, and locked them meaning, as he was leaving, he locked the king in the room, all alone and dead. Presumably with his sword still completely enveloped by the king's morbid obesity. After Ehud had left, the king's servants came back. When they found the doors of the roof chamber locked, they thought, he must be relieving himself in the cool chamber. There's a bit of dark humor in there, an alternate translation has the king covering his feet, which to me is a euphemism, meaning he was covering his feet with his robe because he took it off to relieve himself. A cleaner way of saying the king had to go. Double entendres and all. Combine that with the evisceration, and you might begin to think the writer of Judges had a dark sense of humor. Back with Ehud. The king's servants waited so long that they became embarrassed. There's likely a bit of cultural context missing here. 
Eventually, they retrieved a key to the roof chamber and opened the doors, of course finding the king quite dead. Because of their delay, Ehud had escaped. He passed beyond the sculpted stones at Gilgal, all the way to Sirah, which was another name for Bethel. When he got there, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then, the Israelites went down from the hill country with Ehud in the lead. He told the people to follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, allowing no one to cross over. They were emboldened and killed about 10,000 Moabites that day. And not just any Moabites, but men described as being strong and able-bodied, leaving no one alive. So Moab was conquered by Israel that day, and the land had rest for the next 80 years. To consolidate the story, what we know is that this Ehud was from Benjamin, and obviously before that tribe was nearly driven to extinction, which further aids in nailing down a timeline. And that's the story as found in the text, with a little added detail to better situate it in the historical context. Which gets me to a little outside critique of the way it's presented. Some researchers have proposed that the story in Judges is more of a folk tale, perhaps of a very local origin, that was revised and edited by the Deuteronomist. The extended theory is that the later compiler and writer incorporated a variety of previously existing sources into their narrative of life in early Israel. The story was then edited to fit the cyclical pattern that I've pointed out extensively. Adding to this theory is that this is the only place in the Old Testament that this Ehud is mentioned, though later there are others by the same name. Also the strength in this claim that it's a folktale is all of the rich detail provided in the story of the judge taking down the king, detail lacking from other judge stories, especially the stories of the lesser-known judges. Though, to be clear, the theory is just that, and there really isn't evidence in either direction to support it. You can make up your own mind. And that's it for Ehud, and a good stopping point for this episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with Shamgar. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.